0: I'm sitting here with Chandradasa, director of Dharma Chakra, founder of Free Buddhist Audio, and developer, visionary around the Is that accurate? <laughs>
1: Don't know if I describe myself as a visionary. <laughs> you go
0: <laughs> uh, developer. <laughs> well, I've worked for you for three years now. Worked <laughs> with you for three years now, so I'd say definitely a uh, vision visionary is part of your archetype. I think. Hmm. Um, so we're just we're going to have a conversation about Dharma Chakra, and uh, which is the charity um, behind Free Buddhist Audio and the dot and you've been with Dharma Chakra for. Many years since the. Lifetimes. Life- it
1: feels, feels like. <laughs> since the late 90s, is that right? Oh, since 90s? the mid 90s, since 1996. Wow. August 96. Wow. Can you say a little bit
0: about the sort of early days
1: of Dharma Chakra? Of
0: Dharma
1: Chakra. Oh, of of Dharma Chakra before me or, or Dharma Chakra with me?
0: I think Dharma Chakra with you.
1: Dharma Chakra with me. Yeah. Or so, what, what
0: did you find yourself coming into? Yeah, sure. Yeah. sure. Um, so
1: in 1996, um, Shanti Garba, I remember the, the director of Dharma Chakra. And uh, Ratna Prabha was the chair. And uh, Dharma Chakra was just beginning to emerge as a kind of independent thing. It had been going for years and years and years, but it had always had, I kind can't of share the board, for instance, with Windhorse Publications, but it now had its own, um, sort of very tentative arrangement coming up where we, it had its own chair and a couple of office holders. It still didn't have a very functioning, Basis as a charity, but it was beginning to develop an identity. Shanti Garba had, um decided to branch out of just copying talks on tape. And he'd made a, an intro to meditation audiobook. Which were, audiobooks were called talking books back then. Mm. And, uh, he'd, he'd had some success with that actually. Um it was called Getting Started in Meditation mm. with Kamala Sheila. And he had this, you know, very nicely produced package of tapes with a booklet. Which was published and, uh, he'd sold, they'd sold quite a number of them. I mean, very modest compared to normal sales of these things, but for, for us, quite a number of, of copies. And it had meant there was a little more money in Dharma coffers, uh, to look to expand. So they advertised for somebody who wanted to come and work in team-based right livelihoods, based in Cambridge, in the UK, and based in the, the Windhorse Evolution warehouse. So Winter's Evolution, uh, for those who don't know, is a very big team-based right now business run by the Toronto Buddhist community. Mm. They run a series of gift shops called Evolution uh, through the UK and the odd place in Europe, I think. Mm. And quite a big situation where they had a a large warehouse and set of offices, lots of Buddhists working together on a kind of give-what-you-can-take-what-you-need support basis. Mm. Quite a kind of radical thing.
0: Now, were you living in Cambridge at the time?
1: No, I was living in Glasgow. Mm. So I saw this um, advert for a job uh, um, down in Cambridge with Dharma Chakra and I was, I'd just asked for ordination and I was interested in going deeper with my practice and the idea of living and working in a community of Buddhists mm. really excited me. And it was also something that wasn't that available in Glasgow. We had a, a nice centre and there were a couple of communities and, but there was no business you could go and work in.
0: So what was your background that kind of, did you have any experiences that you thought might be, make you a good candidate for such a position, <laughs> a, with an audio archive as it were?
1: Um, in a tangential so way, I'd done some formal video editing uh, training, and it worked kind of freelance as a video editor and video maker for a while. Um, my background was really in writing. To be honest, the main thing I was attracted by was the fact that there was an opportunity to work with other Buddhists and just be in a, a more immersive situation. And uh, I went for an interview and at first I wasn't really sure I wanted to take it actually for various reasons. Uh but I mulled it over and, and they were kinda keen to have me, I think, at the time, so I you know, we had a couple of other conversations and I decided just to go for it. That was probably all around about April ninety six and I moved down in August and started uh, that Dharma chakra mm. and i was really just copying tapes i mean that was that was like copying tapes and handling some inquiries etc on the telephone mm. and paper letters mm. this was all pre-email really and that was maybe in a way that's maybe where i started to get involved more creatively with that i was the kind of person who was pushing into email and using computers and um a couple of years later, Shanti Garba left and the business needed a director and it was really, you know, I was the obvious person to do it because I was there. Mm. And also we'd, had, we'd shrunk again by that point, we, we weren't making as much money. And um, it was clear that something was really changing with media. Mm. Uh, tapes were, for a start, very passy. Um, audiobooks were probably the only area left that people really used tapes in, but even there, CDs were becoming... It was the final, the final area where CDs needed to get a foothold and, and they did. Mm. But almost all music and audio was happening on compact mm. disc. And actually, I was aware as somebody who was interested in computers and at this point we had um, a computer that we were using for the internet. Um, I was aware that the web was the next big area mm. and MP3 mm. had begun to emerge as a format. It wasn't widely in use, but I was aware of it. And, uh, We bought an Apple Mac laptop
0: Hmm.
1: and started to think about design on Hmm. the web. And really over the next few years there was a a, a very kind of quick evolution in my thinking and the thinking of the the charity about the whole basis of what it was doing. We had a charitable brief to distribute the Dharma as taught by Erdogan and the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order as we were then known. Our remit was to distribute that as widely as possible. And it was just very clear that we weren't able to do that if we were based on tapes. Uh, we had a, a project that I started in 98 called the Digital Legacy to, to move the tape archive, particularly of Sangrax's talks over to digital CD format and to remaster them. And we raised a lot of money and did all that. But even while we were doing that, it was apparent that CDs were on their way out. So <laughs> it's a bit like we, we caught up with the, uh twentieth century, just as it ended, and um, these new formats were beginning to come in mm. and it just seemed in a certain way you know with hindsight, it certainly it seems obvious you know the internet mm. is everywhere all the time,
0: mm.
1: and if you want your stuff to be widely disseminated, that's where you should be
0: but at the time, this would have been around the late nineties early mm-hmm. two thousand um This is where I this is where I get the opinion of you as a visionary because it seems like you were kind of standing alone and sort of seeing the potential for distribution, um, kind of looking ahead a decade, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering if you'd like to share anything about what that was like for you.
1: Um, It was it was difficult in some ways for me. I partly because you're you know I was I was relatively young and in a way I didn't have any. Experience. Nobody had any experience of that. You are trying to sell people an idea that is an idea;
0: right. it's necessarily
1: abstract because <laughs> it
0: hasn't happened. It yet. hasn't happened yet, <laughs> yes.
1: and and it's also that you can't really point to any other context where people are doing it because it hasn't happened yet for anybody else. I was aware um, that it was beginning to happen. I think one of the one of the stories I often tell about it is um, using Napster in the late nineties ninety eight ninety nine Napster was a pioneering. And very short-lived internet service where people could log into each other's computers and go through looking for music files and share them. Mm. And at the time, it wasn't even clear that it was legal to to share files in that way. It had a huge effect on culture. In that very soon, the record companies shut Napster down, mm. and it you know, countries started drafting laws to make it clear that you couldn't share music files in the way that you would share a CD or share a tape. Mm. And that's still controversial for some people. And um when I used Napster and just saw the potential to, you know, connect with someone you didn't even know and, and find a song by the Rolling Stones that you liked mm. and have it on your computer and listen to it, it just seemed like a, an amazing piece of almost magic. Mm. Um, and I was really struck by the possibilities of that kind of distribution model. And then of course Apple brought out their first iPad. Sorry, the... <laughs> <laughs> no they didn't. That's today. Uh,
0: 2001. 2001. 2001. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: So the late 90s Napster, and, and then of course Apple brought out the first iPod, mm-hmm. and um, I remember going along to a meeting of chairs of European Buddhist centres, and saying to them, "Look, there's this there's this thing called the internet that some of you are probably using by now, and uh, there's an amazing distribution model, and actually." I've got, here's a new thing by Apple. We we got one of the very first iPods. And um, this thing that fits in my back pocket can hold all of Sangraxha's lectures with a lot of space left for other people's lectures too. It's five gigabytes iPod. And, you know, to put that in context, a full set of Sangraxha's talks on compact disc was something like 280 discs. And that's a sizable box of discs (laughs) Mm -hmm. to deliver to somebody you certainly can't can't carry that around in your back pocket so I was saying well isn't this amazing isn't this amazing and just blank looks right (laughs) people just and you know not being critical in a way why why would they get it we take it all completely for granted but ten years ago the idea of everybody owning something like this and it being you know completely normal for young people to have something as fancy as this and that's how you would listen to music mm-hmm. and that you would get it off the internet rather than in a shop.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All that stuff, completely, you know, it was in the dreams of various different people that it would go that way, but it certainly wasn't a reality or even a foregone conclusion at that point. Mm-hmm. It was resisted by whole areas of culture, mm-hmm. including our own. I think a lot of people were very sceptical.
0: Mm. Our own within the true, Yeah,
1: within the Triathlon Buddhist community, within the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. A lot of people were just saying, well, maybe this is a fad. Maybe it's not, you know... We should be very careful. Mm-hmm. And in some senses, they've got a point. You know, I think archiving, Dharma is an archive, mm-hmm. first and foremost. That's its basis. And archiving has to be both conservative and flexible and forward-looking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a tricky business to manage. So we, you know, we I, I personally was moving towards recommending that as a strategy that we really embrace the Internet and look at the future of storage of these things and consumption of these things
0: because at the time the whole archive was on cassette tape
1: the whole archive was on cassette tape apart from the things that we digitized and what we'd also done which was probably smart again looking back it didn't feel particularly smart at the time was we'd um provided some big buddhist centers with digital recorders so that they could record their new talks Mm -hmm. in digital format Mm -hmm. and we'd helped other places get hold of equipment And we were doing quite a lot of consulting at the time to help people get ready for a kind of revolution in the way that people consumed media. Mm. And that was useful because we ended up with a lot of digital recordings, uh, many of which are still not available because we don't have the resources to... To kind of transfer them and put them online. Yeah. But we have a, we have a large analog tape based archive. We even have a large analog reel to reel tape based archive from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. We have a large cassette tape, compact cassette tape archive from the 80s and 90s. And in the late 90s we began to uh, have a mini disc and digital tape archive. So that's, that's where we've got to these days is, um We've extended, in a way, that original idea of having community archiving going on that was digital. Now that we have Free Studio, Audio, well, that goes on all over the world. Buddhist centers make their own digital recordings, and they upload them themselves, mm-hmm. so that we don't need to do it. But there is a big middle period where they couldn't upload themselves, because Free Buddhist Audio didn't exist. and But they sent us all their digital archives. So we have these digital archives.
0: Mm-hmm. So that uh, community upload system that you described, um, you said it was international. Mm-hmm. Um Having looked at the site, I can see that different languages are now available.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: So, like, if I live in Poland, or I have an aunt who only speaks Polish, I could refer her to That's right. material online that was uploaded by the uh, the Krakow.
1: Version. Yeah, and that, and that comes back to the basis of the whole project, is um, if you are part of a spiritual movement that has aspirations to be in- international and mm-hmm. available to all... Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever tried to do that before. Nobody's ever set out to found a Buddhist movement that is global and trans-cultural and trans-language and crosses all sorts of boundaries and barriers. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, Buddhism's obviously spread all over the world, but, you know, our, our particular community of practice is only 45 years old. And it's always from the very beginning had kind of a, a a sort of view where it was looking out from its base and trying to kind of talk to people in different countries and since the early days we've had order members from different countries um, speaking different languages. So that's a big challenge when you're an archive because it's naturally going to be UK based because that's where the movement started. Mm -hmm. It's naturally going to be English in the main. But as the Triathlon Buddhist community has grown and developed around the world there are now archives in other languages. uh, Hindi and Marathi in India, Mm -hmm. and French, German, Spanish, Mm -hmm. mainly being the other languages. And um, we now have a centre in Poland, as you were saying, so the talks have been given in Polish. We have a centre in Estonia, so the talks are given in in Estonian.
0: I imagine that makes a tremendous difference to an individual or a small group of people practising at a centre.
1: It does, yeah. To be
0: able to um, hear the Dharma in their own language.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a big part of the future for for these kinds of services is that you need to be crossing language barriers and enabling l- people on the ground in these local communities to produce their own content and to make it available to each other and to the world. Mm-hmm. So in a way you kind of start local and then you act global, mm-hmm. but it's, it's based on what's actually going on.
0: Such a familiar statement.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Think local, act global.
0: Yes.